Hello everyone, and welcome back to Lighting the Pipes. This is our second episode of our third series, and my name is Scott Powell, joined as always by my cousin and co-reader, partner, co-host, Joshua Dwight Gordon-Taylor, the one and only. Ho! <laughs> and uh, after visiting ancient Rome, we are now going to 2000s and 2010s, the noughties, and the 2010s of New York City. And... I don't know if uh, there's any similarities we can draw. Yeah, not too different. <laughs> not uh, entirely. Systemic different. corruption. <laughs> Systemic corruption. Yeah, very um, much so. Over self-importance. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> trying, trying to survive in a world of imperialist capitalism. Yeah, certainly uh, one of the characters is, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. Right. Yes, the focus of today's episode, everybody, is Later by Stephen King, which is uh, his third and most recent crime novel published for the Hard Case There's Crime Library. There's a joke in there somewhere. There is somewhere, yeah, and I'll leave you to find yeah. it. Uh, published, later. Published later. <laughs> published in 2021, just a, just a few months ago. Uh, later, is, later is a story of a young guy, a young boy named Jamie Conklin, who has a, a very specific and unique talent and um, that talent kind of mm. propels this mystery. And a I think it's a King novel with a child with an imaginary, with an imaginary. <laughs> I know, talent? I know, I know. So oh. unorthodox. <laughs> oh, oh, man. Crazy. I'll give you a minute to catch the tongue that's stuck in the back of your throat. <laughs> anyway. Anyway, yeah. So uh, another Stephen King, another Stephen King young person story. Mm hmm. This is, though, the third story that Stephen King published under the Hard Case Crime label. Uh, and it's it's an interesting one. It's an interesting one. I'm looking forward to getting into this with you, buddy. Um, our forays yeah. our forays into ancient Roman detective fiction with Lindsay Davis's The Silver Pigs uh, started us off the season. And now, wow, we got a, a totally different story, don't we? Right? Different style, different everything. Yeah, just like yeah, just if you want if you want the idea of doing a 180, that is the this should this should be a textbook like 180 from what we did before, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. But the purpose of this season everybody was for us to look at a couple of single titles. Several of these single titles are going to be the first books in series, uh in first books of writers detectives um and or of detective series and others are going to be like this one just kind of standalone mysteries but um, we're really glad to have brought Stephen King into and under the microscope I should say here for us because he's a writer who isn't best known for his pulpy crime stories but here no. we've got one with uh, a real supernatural bent as you might expect yeah with Stephen King you know supernatural uh, that comes you know that's part of course and then putting that into the pulpy crime genre uh that's that, that that's interesting and uh that's a very cool kind of twist and I think it you know I think we've seen a lot of different media where they put those two genres together and it works pretty excitingly well think of like mm -hmm. X-Files where mm -hmm, it's like a procedural mm -hmm. but it's also using the supernatural you know it's different from their your standard sci-fi kind of stuff so you know, I think that, uh, you know, mixing those genres together, mixing genres together is always fun. So this is a mystery novel by Stephen King, essentially. Yeah, that's exactly correct. It, or a crime novel, more so. A in, crime as, novel, in, yeah. As, as Stephen King, yeah. Yeah, and we will, throughout the course of this episode, Josh, evaluate, I guess, and discuss for ourselves and for listeners and crime aficionados just how effective this story is as a crime story because while it does follow and play on some generic tropes it also leans very heavily into what king is better known for so i i do wonder how 
genre bending this this story is and i'm interested to get your opinion on that when when the time comes well i think it'll be interesting um you know clash of minds here because you're a huge stephen king fan and you've read many of his novels this is my second novel uh just for as a preface i've only read the stand so right well that's a good one that's a good one buddy that's a good one to have yeah i i I didn't i did enjoy it i mean absolutely Mm -hmm. and i but uh in terms of writing uh I think I found later more compelling, you know, as a novel, because uh, sure. The Stand is a big tome, and yes, there's indeed. a lot of stuff going on into it. And but for t- but but to me, like, for, I just don't think I was emotionally invested in mm-hmm. The Stand as I was in this particular novel. So mm-hmm. I kind of like Stephen okay. King in a more condensed form. I think his writing to me is better when it's. Uh, in this paperback kind of form, not this doorstopper form, you know, that, yeah, that, sure. that, that, I, that, 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 that I started with. So, and, yeah. And that might have something to do with the sample size that you acknowledge is quite, quite limited. But I think there's a couple of things at the outset here, bud, I'd like to talk to you about before we, before we lean into the, or before we go into the plot summary, which I've prepared. Um, the mm-hmm. first of those, the first of those things is, is I guess our understanding of King as a writer, because he is a, crime writer but he isn't really seen as much as a crime writer because because of a supernatural bent like for those who are just getting into stephen king or want to learn more about him or me who only read really you know two of his novels now um what can you tell us about stephen king the author like where he's coming Mm -hmm. from or his background or or something like that to give us more perspective in his writing sure Okay, well, I don't think there's much I will probably need to tell our listeners about Stephen King, and I, simply because how do you speak about a man who is so well-known and celebrated within the world of literature? And there's nothing I'm going to say is going to add to that molehill, no. you know what I mean, or that anthill. But what I would say is that King does have, within his best-known supernatural stories, he does have this element of crime and detection. And there are many police officers who are kind of, first bait in his stories the ones who you know first go to the scenes or the settings of of what appears to be a pretty uh mundane crime before things are kind of before the skin is peeled back on the story to reveal something much much literally more. yeah exactly <laughs> literally sometimes to reveal something uh, much more supernatural um and so it you know, you think about stories, you you talk about Stephen King in a condensed form being a little bit more palatable for you, Josh, uh, instead of these kind of doorstop Tommy ones like The Stand. And I can appreciate that. I mean, King, though he, he has written, and though he's well known for books like The Stand and the, and It and whatnot, um, he is also the man who has written Stand By Me and The Shawshank Redemption. And, you Green know, Mile. Yeah, well, that's a little bigger, but yeah, of course. He, but he he is a writer whose short stories are very digestible. And the Dark Tower as well. The, the Dark Tower series, yeah. My I've heard first the stories are all connected, like they're like a universe, though, are they not? Well, several of them are, yeah. Insofar as they circulate and kind of border around this place in Maine, this town called Castle Rock, this fictional town that he uses with the kind of world building that he has done for for several of his stories. Not all, but several of his stories. Um, Well, let me ask you this, Josh. Uh, When did you read The Stand and why did you come upon it? Um, 
I picked up the stand actually at a uh, book sale at work. It was just one of the paperbacks, and I got a bunch of them actually. I haven't. I have uh, the stand, and I also have it. I haven't read it yet, but I do have that. Um, I was going to pick up some Anne Rice books for my mom, but anyways, I read the stand because <laughs> I wanted to see what it's like. Because I heard there was going to be a miniseries coming out, like, and it was it was just being talked about then. But I heard it was like one of his best books. And you always mentioned how good Stephen King was, and I yeah, think this the, yeah. the concept of the stand it just really interested me, so I wanted mm-hmm. to read it. And mm-hmm. I have my friend, uh, two friends actually. They both read the Dark Tower series, and they were telling me how interesting that was, and then how disappointed they were with the film adaptation. Yeah, yeah. And and um, one thing they pointed out when I mentioned the connected universe was how like. The one of the main, the one of the, the, the villain of the stand is this guy Randall Flagg, this like ancient sorcerer, apparently connected to Merlin, even. Um, and he actually is a figure in the Dark Tower as well. He's the man in black, as as he's called. Uh, so I'm just curious to see. Like I know you mentioned Castle Rock and whatnot, but it seems to me that like he tries to connect all his stories. I even heard that from people that he even writes himself into his stories. He does in, in some in some ways, yeah. I mean, there is a moment yeah. of uh, the, the character in here um, quotes a king later in the story. It, king kind of rips off himself. I'll, when we get to it, we'll discuss it. Uh, well, I did enjoy that moment when Jamie Conklin said this apartment building looks like the prison in the Shawshank Redemption. I thought <laughs> yeah, that was that, pretty funny. That, that was one <laughs> thing. That's one thing. But there was another thing as well. Um, I will... I'll have to tell you, though, buddy, my first Stephen King... Now, I grew up, as many of us do, um, my dad read Stephen King, and I was a l- little boy growing up, and of course, uh, looking at his bedside table, there were always the Stephen King paperbacks, and uh, dad was a pretty avid reader, I mean, he read all sorts of things, but King was always there, and he enjoyed them, um, and so I remember all the covers really more than the stories themselves, because I didn't read them, but some of the covers, the, the trade paperbacks were quite powerfully kind of vivid, you know, for young eyes. And uh, I remember, I remember there being, you know, Pet Cemetery, and I remember there being the Stand and the Tommy Knockers and and whatnot. But the first Stephen King book I read, I came to a little bit late, I guess my late teens. I read Christine. Now it's a strange one to start with, the one about the car that sort of comes to life. Um, but what I would say that was most compelling about that story is how I knew what I was reading was ridiculous. And yet the way it was rendered was skillful enough to make me believe that the, in in this case, I believe the character's name was Roland LaBarge or something like that. Ronald LaBarge. I don't know. Ronald LaBay. Something like that. Uh, Listeners, you can, you know, fact check me on that one, but the, uh, the kind of antagonist figure, the old man who sells, uh, Arnie, is it Arnie Cunningham? The 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 vehicle? Yeah, I think it is. Anyway, um, this was a Happy Days. Well, that's Richie Cunningham. Sorry. <laughs> that's Richie. Yeah. <laughs> no. But it's funny you mentioned Happy Days because there's a lot of like classic and fifties rock songs within Christine. You know that, nice. that sort of that's sort of a big part of the story. But anyway, the evil and the sort of degradation with which this guy, this old man, led his his life was somehow transposed into the car, was somehow inspirited into the car. And this is where I think a lot of the transference and skill comes in Stephen King's writing, is his ability to make the impossible at least conceivable through really good characterization. And Christine was the first one I read. And then from Christine, I went on to Cujo. And then I read Salem's Lot and Firestarter and It. And, you know, it didn't take me long to kind of pick up traction and, and kind of move through them. 
I remember one time, I think you were, when I first realized that you were really into Stephen King, you were reading Pet Cemetery. I think you were visiting mm-hmm. yeah. us, me, and, me in Ontario. And yeah. I always thought Stephen King, you know, like I know that he wrote The Shining and I love The Shining. That was my mm-hmm. first introduction to Stephen King. I was, I was told by many people that the novel is actually better than the movie, but mm-hmm. I love the Kubrick film, uh, The Shining, mm-hmm. uh, particularly. And um, uh, I've seen The Green Mile. I've seen The Shawshank Redemption. So I'm familiar with that part of King, like the more celebrated uh, literary version of King. And I always felt like his horror stuff was always looked upon as being like not as good. But from what you told me, but his horror stuff, even like Pet Cemetery, I was surprised. I think he's he's a fantastic script, storyteller. Yeah, there's something to pull from there uh, academically beyond just being a popular, entertaining novel. Like he of writes course, horror, yeah. yes, which is a kind of a gutter genre for some people, right? Yeah. But totally. at the same time, it's uh, but he does it in a way that makes it, as you said, believable. Um, he mm-hmm. makes you feel about the characters and how they respond to it, so that you believe that they're feeling it, and so yeah. you're not put out as a you're automatically pulled into their perspectives and their world and how they see things. Like if I read a, a like a, a lesser horror story and a character sees like a monster or something like that, I'm real. I'm reading a horror story with, with a fictional character who's seeing a monster, and then I have That's to force right. myself yeah. Yeah. to you know be be scared of that, right? But because yeah. they're writing in terms of the imagery and the description and the characterization of that character experiencing that monster in the way that it is portrayed on the page i'm like you know like it's daytime 5 p.m like 6 p.m and there's still light outside and i'm like you know like i feel tense in my i feel tense absolutely when i'm reading it and that to me is like that means that that means you're more than just a a storyteller so he's kind of like chandler i think in this fashion where he's Mm. working he's doing great art in a malign genre. Mm-hmm. That's a good comparison. Yeah, I, I would agree with you. He's certainly more successful than Chandler yeah. ever was. But um, I think, Josh, we Academically we have to sep- malign genre, I should say. So yes. horror is a great genre. Crime is a great genre. I'm not putting them down in any way. I don't mean to. I'm mm-hmm. talking about, you know, like what, you know, the Illuminati of the literati, I guess you could say, mm-hmm. uh, think about, you know, that type of genre and, and whatnot. Yes. And what do I they agree. think of it now? I don't know. Well, I think time still needs to separate a little bit so that the academic catches up with the populist, because Stephen King is one of these writers who I think history is going to remember uh, critically and academically kinder than just the banks have. You know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. I I feel as though 50, 60 years from now, King's writing is going to, it'll never be out of print. So the word renaissance isn't appropriate. But I think that academically... Once he stops his output, um, his work won't be seen as sort of schlock by the um, Harold Blooms of the world, if you know what I mean. Fair enough. What would yeah. you say is the, are there? What would you say are the influence of Stephen King? Well, King was influenced by you know the world of B picture horror and um, comic books, and you know if you read. If you read Salem's Lot, for example, uh, there's a character and there, a young boy who's really interested in like, you know, the, 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 the Wolfman and the, uh, the Swamp Thing and all of those types mm-hmm. of comics. Universal Monsters. Yeah, to- totally. Like King, King grew up in that. Um, a, a wonderful book that you should read, not just for its, its tips on writing, but to get into King's headspace and his, his early life is his uh, memoir on writing which was published probably 20 years ago now that that's a or 25 maybe that's a fantastic look into Stephen King as a writer um, you know I teach one of Stephen King's books over here I teach it with my grade tens it would be the equivalent 
um, The Girl Who Loved Tom Gordon, which is a supernatural story about a girl who gets lost in a wood in, in the woods in Maine. Um, again, part of that, is that world. Is that a short story or a novella? It's a novella. Yeah, it's a novella, but it's, it's less gruesome than some of his other ones. And it's certainly less sexual and it's less uh, profane, I guess I could say. Uh, and more approachable for kids, but still very chilling and, and mm. very, very believable. And it, it's, it's uh, ambiguous. And I, I guess that's a word we'll use a lot when we describe King and his best works, because ambiguity is so important to that, that ambiguous belief system. Ambiguous is important when it comes to horror. Yeah, it totally is. You, you've, you've you got to live in that space. Doubt. you got to create doubt as to what you're seeing. And then it gets scary because you go on one side and you go down that rabbit hole. And then that's where I think where like the horror comes into it, right? And I think yeah. psychology is very important to, to, to horror because you also don't want to show too much. You want to evoke mood and setting and you want to get into the mindscape of the characters to really yeah. make horror yeah. to me, you know, uh, elevate itself beyond its mm. usual you know like it's, it's it's more sensationalist trappings you know what i mean absolutely um i would say you know on that point of like ambiguity and the psychological i would say that that the shining is a fantastic story um definitely well worth reading the one i would recommend perhaps for the, for someone like yourself josh and maybe readers who who want something a bit more meta is misery um okay it's a fan that's a fantastic book i remember i read that one a little more i recently. mean everyone's seen the film right i mean it was yeah a great film. yeah it's a great it's a great story too because there's so much meta work on kind of writing and the process of writing you know you're following a character who is a writer um who who is the, the character that's imprisoned paul sheldon i believe his name is so like an allegory for the writing experience in, in Absolutely. And in a way, yeah. The way that King gets into that space between the lines for the writer, you can tell that he's bleeding a lot of his own experience on the page. And it's it's really a compelling story and much more, much more than just the horror story that it is. And that's one of the books, for example, that I think will be remembered and acclaimed well outside of its its genre you know, in yeah. years to come. But yeah, we, we are, I suppose, sidelining a bit, um, but it, it's good context in getting us set up for this because King yeah. decides King decides to keep his name. He's not writing under a cognitum here or under a pseudonym here like he has as Richard Bachman for other things he's done. Um, instead, he writes under his own name, but uh, Hard Case Crime, pick him up and do a couple of books with him. And this one is his most recent. So if you're keen... I'm keen. Let's slide into our plot summary and then deconstruct in the story. Yeah, let's do it. In this, his third novel for Hard Case Crime, the publishing house owned and operated by American writer Charles Arday, King focuses his energies on a first-person narrator, Jamie Conklin, who has a supernatural ability that is both a blessing and a curse. The story is set in the 2000s and the 2010s and surveys key moments from Jamie and single mom Tia's life together, including, of course, the central mystery of the novel. Like a lot of King's youthful characters, Jamie is served up normal, but with a twist. And this twist is revealed pretty quickly in. He can see and converse with dead people. 
The opening chapter, in fact, breaks this to us as little Jamie, heading back to his Park Avenue apartment with his mum, Tia, stops in the hall to speak to Mona Burkett, a neighbor. Recently deceased, like very recently, she's hovering around her mourning husband, a literature professor and friend to the Conklins, who Tia is consoling. Though it's revealed first in the story, this wasn't the first time Jamie noticed his gift. The first incident, one that really stuck with him, happened in Central Park when an elderly cyclist got hit by a car. We learn about that later, but it's important to mention at the outset, because that's when Jamie started to notice his ability. And while it might sound ghoulishly creepy to you or I, King manages to make the experiences, for the most part, fairly mundane and acceptable for the young narrator. As with many of his tales, the skillfully rendered people and places within this supernatural mystery are a tad more twisted than the afterlife phenomena themselves. Well, through Jamie's reflection and some sharp mother-son dialogue, we learn that Tia's brother, Harry, is in a nursing home after developing early-onset Alzheimer's. He and Tia were in the business together, both literary agents, but the work is now solely Tia's. During the recession, the business lost almost everything to a Ponzi investment scheme. Her star writer, Regis Thomas, schlocks out installments of linked romantic adventures whose series goes by the name of Roanoke. These stories are vitally important for Tia because they help to keep the lights on and the bills paid. Jamie's mom has a girlfriend, Liz Dutton, who is a feature of Jamie's childhood in both positive and negative ways. Often there in the background of Jamie's recollections, Liz is an NYPD detective who plays a large part throughout the story. She does care for Tia, we sense, but that compassion starts to disintegrate in equal step with her drug trafficking. Yeah, Liz is a dirty cop, but just how dirty and how dangerous comes clear a little bit later. She has a hankering for living fast and taking risks, which causes eyebrows to rise within the police department, but there are only echoes of this in the story, a necessary vagueness on King's part to help drive the rising action of the plot. Characters and conflicts established, the story really gets going when Tia's luck goes from bad to worse and Regis Thomas dies just before completing his draft of the concluding Roanoke epic. This grand finale, which promised to answer all the burning questions for Thomas's hot-in-the-pants saccharine readership, was destined to be left unseen. Only Tia takes action. Collecting Jamie from school, she and Liz head to the writer's home before word of Thomas's death reaches the wider press. Why? Well, if there's even a slim chance that her son has an ability to talk to the dead, maybe he'll be able to find Regis still there and communicate with him to get the details of his final story. After all, who better to pen the untold story than Thomas's long-serving agent who knew and could approximate his style better than anyone else in the business? This is something of a turning point for Tia, who, before now, coolly acknowledged but didn't really want to talk about Jamie's abilities. Now, more desperate than ever, and staring bankruptcy pretty straight in the kisser, she leans into the unbelievable. And, after some searching, it works. Out back by his pool, Jamie finds Regis Thomas, wearing a yellow sash and drooping pajama shorts, who obliges his request. The dead cannot lie, after all and Tia records the conversation her son has with Thomas on her phone as Jamie asks the author questions about the final Roanoke tale. 
Incredulous but taking mental notes of her own, Liz clears the way with the local police and gets Tia and Jamie out of there just as media start to swoop in. Jamie is old enough by this point in the story to know something is wrong, but a Burger King meal placates, for now at least, the insecurities that he feels about his mom's request. Using her notes, Tia writes and publishes the final installment, and Regis Thomas's legacy is tied neatly up. More importantly, her agency manages to survive longer. Money keeps coming in, as well as some new clients, and the lights stay on. However, about this time in the story, Tia and Liz break up after Tia discovers some drugs in the process of laundering Liz's coat. Steadfast in her commitment to shield Jamie from dangers and crooked cops, she ends things. Jamie is ambivalent about the breakup, as Liz, though fun and caring occasionally, also moved with a long shadow, which he felt keenly. Nevertheless, fast forward a couple of years and Liz returns. Jamie, now entering his teens and growing wiser in the way of girls and school sports, leaves his middle school one afternoon to find Liz waiting for him. She softly forces him into her car, wanting to use her as power to help save her job and the city. The NYPD are growing suspicious of Liz, and though she never states it, Liz needs a big win to help keep the wolf, or maybe that should be sniffer dogs, from the door. A serial bomber named Kenneth Terrio, nicknamed Thumper, has just committed suicide after planting his final bomb somewhere in the city. Liz has before wanted to get onto the task force hunting Thumper, but never quite managed to convince her superiors of the dedication or the skill needed. Somehow, I guess, suspicions of drug trafficking or shadiness might have stopped her from getting there. Terrio's story is an interesting one, and King does dedicate significant time to building up the criminal figure who Jamie is destined to meet, through Liz's persuasion, outside of a strip mall on a busy street sometime after being taken from school. He becomes a central player in the remainder of the novel. Unlike other dead people with whom Jamie has conversed, Terrio is himself haunted by something, and not for the first time in his career, King pits the power of a precocious youth against a meta-evil that is neither fully portrayed nor understood. Terrio does give up the location of the bomb to Jamie, but not without some conflict, textbook horror, and a parting promise to see Jamie again soon. Unlike all of the other dead people Jamie knew, Terrio does hang around and stalks him. He gets used to this, but his creepy prophecies about cancer and Alzheimer's do worry Jamie more than a little. He decides to talk with his old neighbor, Professor Burkett, who, though not completely sold on the validity of the supernatural engagements, can see enough that Jamie experiences them, and so he shares with him information about the ritual of Chud, an ancient Tibetan ceremony of engagement used to expel demons and possessions from the world. When he next sees Terrio, Jamie decides to test his might and engages in this ceremony of Chud as he has been instructed to do. The metaphorce possessing Terrio is unprepared for this, and in the process transforms, falling under obedience to Jamie. Through King's storytelling, this dead light being is rendered much scarier to us than Terrio's corpse itself, in a similar way to how the creature in it was maybe more frightening than Pennywise the clown. Professor Burkett soon dies, however, and in conversation with him, Jamie is warned by the deceased scholar to never summon that demon again, despite now possessing some control over it. 
This ominous warning is left hanging in the air, and neither Jamie nor the reader know where Burkett's advice came from, but it's chilling enough to draw us in. And in lingering quotes reminiscent of Robert Burns, Whistle and I'll come to you, my lad, we understand that Jamie now holds his upper hand in a relationship with a deadlight being that he can't quite comprehend. Well, as it turns out, the final showdown isn't one we might have expected. Instead of Terrio's ghastly return, Liz re-enters the story and kidnaps Jamie. Having lost her job, but gained a drug dependency, Liz fully resides on Skid Row with all that that entails. This time, instead of traversing across town and back in time for tea, Liz forces Jamie to travel upstate with her to the leafy estate of her drug lord boss, Donald Marsden, for whom she now works. King officiandos will probably recognize the name Marsden as being keenly similar to that of Hubie Marsten from Salem's Lot, the deceased hitman whose house is selected by Barlow and the ancient vampire he totes around with as reputable domicile for their heinous plans. Anyway, Liz believes that Marsden is hiding an enormous stash of Oxycontin pills and wants Jamie to find out their whereabouts so she can hit it rich and start a new life. Things went drastically downhill since Tia left her, and she reckons she's owed this favor for keeping the lid on the truth about the final Roanoke book. Jamie complies, but he knows he's in deeper trouble. Last time, Liz was still Liz, and wanting to do right by the world in taking out Terrio, even if she was looking to save her job. This time, however, Liz herself seems demonic, strung out and desperate, and, of course, she's also a killer. He knows, this time, that there's no chance of getting home for tea, even if Liz says things to the contrary. She puts bullets into both Marsden and his guard, Jamie intercepts Marsden's deceased form and is eventually led to a panic room hidden within a library wall. Inside, some frightfully degrading evidence of sick child abuse and exploitation is discovered, but very little in the way of drugs. Jamie seizes his opportunity to run, and he tries to bolt, but Liz catches up with him. Panicked, Jamie whistles for the deadlight to appear, and it does, in Terrio's now charred and rotting form. It kills Liz almost immediately, but somehow stronger now tries to overpower Jamie and reverse that slave-master rapport. Jamie withstands and forces it out of Marston's home. The deadlight vanishes, and Jamie, alone in a murdered kingpin's home, surrounded by filth and fear, calls the police. He makes it back home to Tia, and all is relatively well. Later, now in high school, Tia calls on Jamie and tells him that his Uncle Harry has died of pneumonia. He and his mom travel to the care home, and there he decides to talk to his dead uncle, questioning him about his father. Indifferent to the truth, almost bored, Harry tells Jamie that he is his father. Jamie neglects to collect more information about the incestuous affair and says nothing to his mom about the revelation that he now knows. The secret, he understands, she has kept hidden from him his whole life. And so, as later comes to its conclusion, we are left fearing not so much the spiritual forms or demonic possessions that frequently interact with the human world in Stephen King's writing, but instead, and more so, the all-too-real potential for legitimized horror that exists within all of us. 
Well, uh, that's another great summary by uh, Mr. Powell here. Uh, thank you very much for that, Scott. Uh, that was a very good rundown of the story. Uh, you definitely captured some of the the feelings and uh, the frisson, I guess you could say, that I experienced throughout the novel. Frisson. Good. Glad frisson. you enjoyed. Glad you enjoyed. I did. So let's talk about uh, the book itself. So we're going to go into our usual rating system, uh, our pipes. Uh, so first, of course, we're going to light our metaphorical pipes. Mm -hmm. uh, and and so what do we mean by pipes? Well, uh, it's an acronym. P is for principle. I is for investigation. P is for perpetrator. E is for environs. And S is for supporting characters. We rank each one of these out of five, and uh, that determines a final our final evaluation of the novel at the end of the episode. Yeah, and each season we uh, kind of go back and look at our pipes as a scoring index to rank. But you know, this season it's it's really just more of really a, a scoring do, system do in general. Nah, we don't have. It to. really is um, because we we're not to, ranking yeah. them against this against like one particular yeah. within one particular series, right? Yeah, but it, but it, it's still our equivalent of the the movie or the book scoring system for reviewers, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, it's absolutely. our own little thing. And if you want to know where it all came from, go back and read. Uh, go back and check out our season one episodes on uh, Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> and good luck to you if you start back there. <laughs> good times, though. Yeah, so it's, uh, a good, it's a it's a good times. They were embryonic times, <laughs> and I, I'm I'm glad they took us where where we did one hundred percent. Yeah, well, well, let's get into it then, buddy. The principle of this story, uh, realistically, it's it's Jamie Conklin himself, of course. And yeah, uh, yeah one hundred percent, it's Jamie. What did you think? Uh, he's a likable kid with good morals. He's very intelligent and he's well read for a kid his age. But I mean, that's because of his mother's a uh, publisher's uh, agent, right? So, you know, sorry, yeah. a literary agent. Uh, resourceful, he's courageous. Uh, even though he's scared, he admits it, but he faces his demons in his own way. Um, I do find that he's a bit of an authorial mouthpiece uh, for the author <laughs> to simply yeah, tell yeah, us the yeah. story of Liz Dutton's fall from grace. To me, Liz is sort of the a kind of the secondary principle of the of the of the tale. But I can also see how she's also you know the perpetrator in in the way as mm -hmm. in, in this way as well. Uh, now King has that whole child of incest thing to give him a bit of an edge and maybe to possibly explain his connection to the supernatural in that mm -hmm. fashion. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He's headstrong, but he's not weak minded, um, which I found sometimes uh, a little bit un unbelievable because like, you know, this is a kid, you know, growing up and then going through puberty and all the emotions that come with that. Mm -hmm. And he's able to push down these demons many times and, I, I was just looking for kind of like a flaw with Jamie, like something about him that I wouldn't like or I, or I didn't like about him or something. And I yeah. found that he was just too good of a kid. And while I enjoyed his character, I enjoyed his authorial voice. I liked him. I identified with him. There was something about him, though, that just wasn't compelling for me. And I was more interested in the people around him more so than Jamie as a whole, if you can understand. I can understand you, yes. And I, what I would say, you know, buddy, is that 
King has a lot of precocious young people. Like, I mean, it's a trope. You could write a dissertation or a doctoral thesis on this. You know, like King has this thing where he bestows in a lot of young protagonists an extra power or an extra courage. Sometimes it's not a supernatural affinity, as is the case here. Sometimes it's just like a something that makes them unique or different or or kind of antagonist to the evil in the story. And that's yes, a really neat right. thing. It's a really nice, hopeful thing to have as a as a you know, as a signature, as a, you know, for your, for your writing. But in this case, I find that Jamie is, and again, my, my sample size cipher? of King. Yeah, he's a cipher, but you know what? He doesn't have a thing that makes him interesting. Like he doesn't have, as I said it before the plot summary, he doesn't have like a comic book thing that we follow. He doesn't have a rock music thing. There is no sort of um, obsessive thing or idiosyncratic thing that Jamie has. He is, as you out, as you outline, he's just an, a good kid who's maybe a li- maybe even a little boring, and you know he's not sensitive outside of this supposed or sorry outside of this um this incestuous origin that we don't learn about until the very 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 end anyway maybe that's what gives him this uh sensitivity to the supernatural but that's only suggested as as i guess what i'm trying to say is he's just a teenage boy that we're following that can do something cool he doesn't have anything else that makes him different you know we, we get a little bit about him being interested in girls and school sports when he enters middle school, but so, is that, so, so are most kids, you know? Yeah, exactly. There was just nothing remarkable about him other than the power that he that he has. And the only and to me, like the mystery of the story was, you know, how did he acquire this power? Why does he have it? Why is it hereditary? And yeah. then, you know, like, and so maybe because his uncle has it or something, and that's maybe the Alzheimer's is somehow connected to that. I think the yeah, Alzheimer's yeah. thing kind of comes in metaphorically in the end, of it course. It does, but yeah, yeah. It, but to me, like, they never really, there's no explanation for his power. And maybe mm-hmm. King is suggesting, you know, that the incest is what makes him different as a character. But, mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. could does be that right, make yeah. you an interesting character because you're the child of interest? I mean, you got to have good writing and mm-hmm. backing. I mean, the Lannisters are characters of created, are, are incestuous characters, but they're also interesting characters, right? So, yeah. that's, the, that, that's the whole thing. You can't You can't rely on a gimmick just to sell your character, in my opinion. Yeah. Particularly when that gimmick is only revealed at the end. Like, exactly. It, and like, it's never something it's we know. It's a big mystery box all the way through. Like, yeah. I had no, like, to me, like at the end of the story, okay, great, he's a kid of incest. Or wait, isn't he? Or, or, uh-huh. or, 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 or is he the kid of incest? Or, or is he making this up? And so, no, no, no. It, you know, or is he hiding mm-hmm. the fact that he, that he was also not, not, not just a, a, a child of incest, but also a child of rape as well. So, yeah. like, it's like, what's he saying on that, right? And it just seems this kind of, uh, I don't know, I was just very unsatisfied with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you weren't alone. The, you weren't alone. No. Yeah. I like the kid overall. I like Jamie. But at the same time, like, I was more interested in the characters around him. And I was curious to see where the story was going more so than mm-hmm. the character. But I think yeah. a character should propel the story as well. And the mm-hmm. story should work, should bounce, should, uh, like, reflect the character's motivations and their actions. The character should be, like, a device to tell the story and in a believable way. And to me, like, I just found that Jamie was sort of like, again, an authorial mouthpiece, almost like King himself narrating and using the kid as a cipher to tell the story. Mm-hmm. I, I agree. I, I went for a three for Jamie. I was a three as well. 
And that's my principal mark because I don't put anybody else in there. I don't put Liz Dutton in there, or nor, nor do no. I put Tia or anybody else for that matter. Um, yeah, he's he is cool. the principal. He's cool. It's undeniable, but it doesn't mm-hmm. mean that he's a great principal either. No, right? no, 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 no. Yeah. And I think I think we've outlined the reasons why he he's not deserving of a higher score, at least in and according to our scale. We uh, we just wish he had something a little bit more interesting, or that the backstory that we're meant to care about was revealed or textured in a little mm-hmm. bit more. But that that's also perhaps a condition or a, a restriction of the genre because he's writing pulpier, quicker a little bit more quickly, maybe King isn't interested in that backstory, you know? That's true. You got to, that is something definitely to consider, Mm -hmm. but you know, this is, this is how I felt on, you know, on my experience Mm -hmm. with this story. And, you Mm -hmm. know, I think, uh, I think a three is fair for that character. Maybe even I would have, I was even considering a two and a half because I just wasn't pulled into him and I wasn't really interested in him. I was more interested in his experiences more than, than himself. And I think maybe just maybe, and this might go into the investigation, of course, if mm-hmm. I think if I had, if I had, uh, if the ending was better for me, I, or if I appreciated the ending more, I, I think the ending could have helped the character really come along. But to me, mm-hmm. it just sort of like kept us on the same trajectory all the way through. All right. Well, let's slide into investigation, pal. Um, from my part, you know, I, I, I had trouble with this one as a crime story because it's while we get hard the, to evaluate. Yes. It's very hard to evaluate. It's it's more like this guy, this young guy, and the character of Liz and his mom, Tia, like they they engage in a couple of different investigations, but as a single plot narrative, it's very difficult to see how there's link between these little things. The thing that links them is Jamie's ability to see. It's not until it's not until Terrio comes into the story that we really get that sort of central mm. conflict with the the dead light being, you know? But even then, it's like, it's just a collection of experiences leading up to the present. That's what this story is. Like, it's a yeah, collection of that's, experiences that's exactly that, right. that yeah. occur. Yeah. And I mean, that's that's a very interesting way vignettes, to tell the story. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Vignettes, exactly. That's a, it is a, a vignette because there's so many time jumps that occur as well. And we're also bouncing back from the present because of the, and the, and the future because of the, narr- and the past story uh, because of the narration, right? So did you so, like that novel? Did you like that novelty or, or did it put you off? Uh, it didn't... It, where it ended up to, like, I thought there would be a lot more. Like, I was really getting into the story and I wanted to go to some really interesting, exciting place by the end because I was really enjoying it as I was reading it. But it just kind of came to an end. Okay, we're in the present. Uh, you know, he's a, uh, he's a student now going to college. He smokes now probably because he's nervous as hell because a dead leg could come back into his life anytime. <laughs> so right. he needs something to relieve the stress. Oh, by the way, he's also a child of incest. Um, <laughs> on top of that, his mother has her own idiosyncrasies that probably drive him nuts in her own way. And at the same time, he also knows he's going to develop probably, you know, early onset Alzheimer's as well. <laughs> so that's kind of a depressing end to take us. And that's where the story ends. And it's just like, wow, like I, I, that, that should have been a really powerful for me, I think. But for some reason, it just comes off sort of, uh, mm-hmm. I don't know, like a bit too pat um, yeah, or yeah. it's just kind of like just too matter of factly, too casual. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. That Jamie and, has been able to, yeah, like if this is Jamie's story about his life, then he's he's kind of reconciled to it okay. <laughs> and I guess the story, that's the whole thing is that when you realize that the story is about something, then, then you realize the story is about something that you really didn't expect it to end up as. It's basically mm-hmm. him, his fear for the future of him losing these memories that he has right now. But then there's, there's also the ambiguity. I mean, 
he's going right now he's still haunted by his experiences obviously he still talks about it with terrio yeah. with yeah. liz and all this sort of stuff like that so that's going to haunt him but then when he loses his, his mind his memories he's no longer going to remember that and is that's he right. afraid yeah. of losing those memories those other experiences that were more enjoyable that he had yeah, in his yeah. life good question or or, you know, is he glad he's looking forward to losing those memories, but then also losing the other things? So again, it's like, it's a catch-22, right? So mm-hmm. I do like that ambiguity of that suggestion that he's ambivalent towards, you know, what his future will be. And I think the story, mm-hmm. in, in a way, is an ambivalent story as a whole. Now, I would have preferred something more straight, like more linear in terms of where it was going, at, you know, but at the same time, I don't dislike it either. So Yeah, yeah. So I did like it. Uh, the story as a whole, but I just, I didn't enjoy it as much as I wanted to by the end, I guess you could say. Sure. There are all sorts of ways to tell, there are all sorts of ways to tell stories and investigations like this. I mean, you could, you could do it in, um, in straight narrative, you could do it in epistolary form, you know, you can do it in all sorts of, you know, different structural and experimental forms. And I don't mind this sort of series of vignettes of experiences that we link through the characters, less so the uh, the plot of each incident. I don't have a problem with that, but, it, you know, the writing is good and it's well-paced and interesting enough and chilling enough, too, in places yes. uh, to, to certainly to keep us interested and engaged. I went for three and a half with the investigation because I was aware so I was I. in do- – I, oh, did you? I, I was aware I was doing something different as a reader and I was – not necessarily going to be given the same sort of encouraged narrative, you know, to follow along with. Um, but I, I did have a problem with the ending, Josh, as you said. I mean, I felt like there was a lot that came together awful quick and a character who just sort of was like, meh, I'm resigned to it now. And uh, I hope that great. Deadlight thing We're not. We're just, dealing, we're just dealing with this right now. <laughs> that's so that's right, great. Yeah. I'm yeah. glad you're resigned to it. I'm glad you found peace with it. That, that, that's awesome. Now I have to go like <laughs> yeah. sit here and go, what the fuck? You know, well, like, <laughs> I do wonder if, uh, if King maybe sketched this one out, had another hundred or 200 pages to make it a full size novel. If he would have done something a bit more, uh, a bit more meaty with Jamie and his characterization, because it does come quickly. And I also have to ask you this buddy, like as I was reading the ending, I kind of suspected that maybe uncle Harry was Jamie's dad, but so I did I. But I thought uncle was the name that maybe Tia had given him. I thought maybe exactly. it was her husband. I I don't know exactly. And she and yeah, she she did she didn't want her yeah because she didn't want him to like uh, hate him you know because she's yeah. looking after him obviously right because she yeah. maybe I, I felt that maybe being, even though they were a stranger for whatever reason because you know he had Alzheimer's and stuff she feels guilty about the relationship and mm-hmm, maybe right. she left him maybe she left her husband because of Liz or something like that right and exactly so, yeah that that would or been or, more or not, not well not because. Well, not because of Liz, because she met Liz after, but I'm talking like maybe for the same reason, maybe because she is a, she was at the time with her husband, a closet lesbian. That's and right. maybe, yeah. and maybe she decided, you know, and that's the reason why and she's guilty about it. And that's why she's paying, you know, of, uh, taking care of Uncle Harry. And then she didn't want to mm-hmm. tell Jamie that he was his father. So I was assuming that I figured by m- near the end that Jamie, especially when we're there, when they were, when th- the fact that we went into the epilogue about him dying, I yeah. knew that we were going to go to him being his father, but then mm-hmm. nope, he plays it all that he plays that sh- right through. He's like, he's not lampshading it. He's nope, just straight out saying it. It's mm-hmm. his, it's his uncle is his dad. 100%. Right. But I mean, I don't know what was to be gained from that really, because I, I didn't, it's it like didn't he need- wanted to put in a, it didn't need to be in there. 
I guess he wanted to have some connection to the supernatural, and to that the was potentially way supernatural. Yeah, to I the guess. supernatural, and by having that sort of like uh-huh. that, I guess, unnatural mm-hmm. creation, yeah. uh, it creates this this abnormality. I guess you could say it creates this you know supernatural Chance. connection for yeah. him. It yeah. does, and that but, that was his vague way of explaining it to me. Mm-hmm. That's my that, that's yeah. my look at it. I agree with you. I think that that is probably why he put it in there. But I'm also thinking on the other end of things to have Uncle Harry just be the dad with a uncle name instead of that's your dad. I think it would have been more interesting to go to those progressive places where maybe the gender and the sexuality uh, themes could have been played out a a bit more well progressively, as Mm. I say, like, like, yes, Tia needing to find a way out of the relationship so that um, she could she could have her life with Liz and Harry and his Alzheimer's giving her that out and then her living with that guilt because she lived that closeted life. I think we we could have had a really interesting sexual story there, um, mm-hmm. but hey, we we didn't get that. And I guess in a story of this size and scope, we weren't going to get that. But instead, no. King King wanted to play on the supernatural connection and he did it through the incest. So okay, fair enough. But. Um, yeah, I guess we're, we're talking about Liz. So as a perpetrator, this is where the story is interesting uh, because we, we finished this story fearing, as I said in my plot summary, fearing, you know, Terrio and the dead light less than we do mm. the evils of the evils of humanity. And that's very much a Stephen King thing. King likes yes. to deliver that to us. Like you've just read a book about vampires, about, about, you know, dogs that are, you know, bitten by bats or whatever. And these horrible things that have happened, like a monster inside a clown suit, but it's really the bullies of the story. It's really the, the rapists of the story. The, the, the real world criminals turn out to be, you know, the scarier parts, the subtext and, yes. and the, the supporting players to the the big bad the the scary monster yeah and i have to say like as uh in terms of the perpetrators I, this was one of my high marks of the book actually i gave a four mm-hmm. to the perpetrators because uh liz dutton uh, she's just a great complex villain like she's morally bankrupt but we see why you know through mm-hmm. jamie's eyes you piece together you know her decline and she's a clear example of that you know the road to hell is paved oh, yeah. with good yeah. intentions good right? intentions yeah yeah. Because she wanted to look after her sister and her fa- and her and her husband after the you know the 2008 recession, which yes. also affected yeah. uh, Tia and uh, Jamie, of course, and Uncle Harry as well, right? Sure. Um, yeah. It may well have triggered you know his uh, short his uh, his um, his his early onset Alzheimer's in a way, if you think about it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but just going forward to that. Uh, like the very fact that she and you know and the fact that we know that her sister was a bit homophobic as well and looked down upon her and now she has the pride of looking after her and I think it was the end of that pride that was kind of the beginning of Liz's downfall and uh, yeah it's just like just the ambiguity of her character like you like Liz the way that he, Jamie describes her you know that he's fond of her you know that you get a feeling that she is a good person deep down there but oh, that whole totally. person yeah, gets yeah. totally swallowed up by a different type of demon not a deadlight not something you know else she gets swallowed up by addiction and you can see her just slowly kind of degenerate into the waif that she is by the end of the story and you get to a point now where like there's nothing more scary than the, when when you read you know that that passage that Jamie talks about near just just near the end when they're at Marsden's house, like he was pretty sure, you know, that Liz was going to kill him afterwards. Oh yeah, he and knew you that he actually, wasn't coming back and, for tea. 
Yeah. But the thing is that as a reader, I wasn't 100% sure yet because I was still believing in in the moral complexity of Liz at this time, right? Mm -hmm. And would she actually go that far? Is Mm -hmm. she actually fond of him, right? But then Stephen King hints like earlier on that goes, well, because Jamie says after the whole experience with uh, Regis Thomas and all that, she looked Mm -hmm. at me differently. So I think when she realized that she found she was freaked out, obviously, by um, Jamie it kind of brought up the worser aspects of her character. She became more opportunist because of it. And I think she emotionally detached herself from Liz, from Jamie and Tia after that. And that was, and that's kind of what made her, I think, easily go on her decline as well, despite, you know, the stresses that she's dealing with, you know, trying to bring down Terrio. And then, of course, the, the decline of her career and all those things combined, right? And she was only doing the drug trafficking at the beginning to support her family, uh, which she never revealed to uh, Tia, right? So, yeah, a very didn't. interesting character. And as a villain, like, yeah, 100%, like, terrifying, but also very sympathetic at the same time. And mm-hmm. King just just created her brilliantly uh, for mm-hmm. me on the page. And, uh, yeah, like, uh, her death was really interesting. And I don't know if it's a uh, another trope in Stephen King novels, but, like, the idea of her being, like, attacked by the spirit of Terio that... Uh, uh, that he calls at the last minute to save him. That reminded me a lot of, I haven't read the book, but I watched Dr. Sleep, which is the sequel to The Shining. And uh, the main villain of that is this vampiric character, uh, Rose the Hat, played by Rebecca Ferguson. And her character is essentially like taken down by the demons of the Overlook Hotel that are called by the grown-up Danny. Um so I don't know if that was in the book or not, but that was definitely in the film. And I, and that just reminded me of that moment. Like, was King, you know, does he have a, 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 is there a history of the villains being destroyed by the spirits called upon by the, the I guess, the super child protagonist or something like that? Yeah, that's, that's a good observation. And I'm, I'm not familiar with Dr. Sleep. Dr. Oh, Sleep. shit. I'm sorry. I'm, I must have spoiled it for you. I do apologize. No, 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 no. no it's okay. Dr. Sleep is one of the books that I, I don't actually know. Um, so I have read The Shining, but I haven't read Dr. Sleep. My wife has, though, so I could ask her about that. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm glad that you, you're given high praise for Liz Dutton. She's uh, She is a compelling character, and her transformation in a book as small as this does come across being a little bit pat. I mean, to borrow your own word, because, mm. you know, we, we don't get all of that sculpting. It's just like, here she is here where she was beautiful, hot, sexy. Here she is here yeah, where she's still beautiful, hot, super and sexy. Super lady but, cop. But yeah. she's bad, but she's bad. Here she is kidnapping Jamie kind of lightly. Uh, she's looking a little rough, but she's still herself. Here she is. She's just become a demon herself now. You know, like, it, yeah. it, because we only see her in these sort of um, semi-structured vignettes. vignettes, she, yeah, she comes across a bit like uh, Evil Inn from He-Man at some point at the end. You know <laughs> what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that that's what I had. That's what I had imagined in my head anyway. Interesting. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm totally in agreements with you in regard to uh, Liz Dutton. I think we're in agreements a lot there. Another perpetrator I guess we can talk about is Terrio and, mm. uh, and or Thumper or the Deadlight <laughs> even. Um, what did you think of him as a perpetrator? Yeah, I, I like Terrio. I mean, I see him as... Hey, champ. Uh, yeah, hey, champ. I like I liked him. I, I like the fact that he was different. And I don't know if this is some way of saying that... Um, because it is hinted at, you know, Professor Burkett says something to Jamie about, you know, the the people who hang behind 
um, who seem to be evil or who seem to be mean or the spirits who seem to be unhappy are the ones. Well, yeah, it's actually not Burkett that says that. I don't know if Stephen King would, would say something or in his writing has said something to the effect of the the evil people are the ones who can't quite die. They've got to hang around and do something for someone else. You know what I mean? But Interesting. Terrio almost becomes an angelical figure, for, like a guardian angel for, uh, in a way, yeah. kind of in a yeah, weird in a way. kind of way mm-hmm. for, because uh, he knows he has to haunt this kid for the rest of his life. So mm-hmm. he almost is, and you know, he was a disturbed man in his life. Maybe he's finding in his own way some weird kind of redemption in what he's doing by helping out Jamie. It's it's weird to say, but at the same time, like it's, it's interesting too Maybe. that he's also the the he it was I think too is though that you gotta also consider narratively, uh st- structurally, that Terrio is also when he when 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 Jamie calls on him to help him get you know Liz off his back, you know, in that final sequence, he takes down Liz. And of course Liz has been his antagonist for the longest time, even when he was alive, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. So that and she and he, and she's the one that did foil his whole bombing of the supermarket and 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 whatnot. Even though she never got any real credit for it, he was it, it was still you know uh, instrumental in that. So mm. you can see how Terrio would probably help Jamie for that reason alone. Well, so a bit yes a bit, no. a bit ambiguous I, whether he's a guardian angel. I yeah, I think I think you're reading him a bit differently the way I am. Mm. I mean, you say that he yeah, of course he's got a haunt. Jamie for the rest of his life or for the, yeah whatever the but rest of eternity more for so. the rest of eternity but that's not Terrio that's the dead light that's inhabited him that, like at, at the end the of the story but, but they're merged just together in their own way they yeah. do I guess they merge together but I, I kind of see Terrio as just a vessel like it's just his I almost feel like when the dead light is expunged from his body he is, is, is is released yeah I kind of see it yeah, that way he, like he his true, penance true, is to carry, yeah. is to be a vessel for this creature, this non-world, other, otherworldly power. But I think it could be argued that the deadlight, even though Terrio was sent back to where he was and the deadlight kind of took over him, there could be traces of his personality slightly in the deadlight that would, you know, that that in a narrative kind of sense, conveniently is what destroys Liz at the end, right? Is that demon that she's always been pursuing, the one that led her to lose her career, the one that led her, you know, and it, with, among other problems to become a drug addict and and have her great, you know, fall from grace, you know, and end up where she did was because of Terrio. And the deadlight is the one that kind of puts her out of her misery, so to speak, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And the fact, you know, that, you know, that, and she doesn't get the chance to kill Jamie, you know, it's something, that's something that, you know, she could never be redeemed for, you know what I mean? So. But if you think about like the evil in the story, it's like, there's so much kind of depravity, isn't there? Well, yeah. I mean, you get to see all the, all of the, uh, you get a cornucopia of like, you know, all of the depravity of humanity in that story. Uh huh. For sure you do. What about Uncle Harry as a perpetrator then? I don't really think of him as a perpetrator. I mean, he's throughout the story, but he's mentioned as he hinted at because because obviously King is leading up to the big reveal at the end that's supposed to connect everything together that we argue, you know, probably 
you know doesn't, doesn't really do it for yeah, us. Yeah. So, uh, I don't. I don't know. I would say Liz Dutton is probably the main perpetrator, and Terio yes. is this yeah. is the supernatural sidekick, mm-hmm. I guess, to to her to her perpetrator in a way, and that and they're both connected to Jamie. And they, and they both and he's connected to Jamie and Liz in some way, whether it's the deadlight or the or the or Kenneth or Kenneth Terrio. Kenneth Terrio himself. Mm-hmm. Himself, yeah, exactly. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, I went for a three. You went for a four, and it's uh, it's it's nice to see you uh, giving Liz high praise. I hadn't read her quite the same way that you did, or at least in quite the same depth that you did, but. I I do agree with you, kind of. Like, the way she was doing what she was doing uh, illegally to to keep her family afloat. I mean, that's good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It's not good stuff. It's it's, not good stuff. It's not good stuff. (laughs) But it's good character reading, yeah. It's good character reading, exactly. So what about the environments? I mean, in this story, I find it moves so fast that we, we get glimpses of places, but there is no setting to which we return. There are no sort of spaces that, to, at least for me, are are made really, really bright and vivid and powerful. Like, I did like Marsden's estate at the end, and Regis mm-hmm. Thomas's estate is, is okay as yes. well. But I like the, those little estates that, that little states that they, that they go to. They had their own kind of like, you know, atmospheric kind of way, yeah, you know, these rich totally people did. living in these big houses and these big yeah. compounds and all of the stuff that they can hide in those compounds. Like totally. When just yeah. the way that, just the way that like they were describing, you know, what's in Reedish's green shed there. Right. And I keep thinking of, you know, like horror movies about how like there's always a shack out back or if you've seen like the movie Hereditary, for example, like that weird tree house thing and that weird tree house thing, or even in like uh uh, midsummer, that weird triangle wooden thing that they built at the the cult or at the cult built or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just those little, it's just those little kind of details in the terrain that kind of make those compounds really creepy to me in in, 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 a, in a way that you know compared to I guess you know the standard horror settings of like the old house on the hill or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think for that the sure. cover now of Sa- of Salem's Lot, and that's what the cover of the book is. It's like a house on top of a, uh, like a yeah, a, almost like a, like an Amityville horror house on top of a hill, yeah. right? So, well, that's that's right, and uh, that's the that's the Mars Ten place. And as I said in my yeah. outline, there's definitely a connection between what King is doing with Donald Marsden here and uh, Hubie or Hubert Marsden in Salem's yeah. Lot, because Marsden in, in Salem's Lot, the house has inherited evil. The guy was a hitman during the during the Depression or the 20s, I can't remember, uh, but um, okay. Depre- Depression era, I think. Anyway, th- there's something going on there, but I didn't find in this story we really had one place that was mm. a recurring New scene York was of kind terror. of an occurring situation. I guess. I, 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 liked, yeah. I liked how, for example, like every location in New York and its surrounding boroughs, whether it's Westchester County, New Paltz, uh, Central Park, or even the elevator of his building, I liked mm. how every interior and exterior of a modern city we have depicted in real life or modern media, like he gives it attention uh, that can be in, that that it can be inhabited mm-hmm. by the supernatural sure, because yeah. like he doesn't play he doesn't like over go into those expressionist horror tropes in these locales you know he doesn't really set any ambiances but what he does well to me in this story is show how immediately they can be transformed by paranormal forces so like hmm. a busy street corner in the middle of the day is a place where a grotesque figure yeah, yeah. dead man with a hole in his skull can sit mm-hmm. on a bench outside a store and their <laughs> cold presence felt and dogs barking away you know moving away yeah. and children feeling that presence that is and cool. whatnot that is cool. like the idea that like in the in the in the in the you know in the waking light of day 
you can see dead people walking around and these horrific things outside of, you know, our psychological sphere of, of the dark and nightmare. Yeah, and it flips the that. script. Yeah, it totally does. It flips the script. Yeah. So I did like that kind of that, uh, I guess that horror in, in daylight kind of feel that he was conveying with New York City in this. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. It, could, it could basically yeah. mean that I could walk outside right now in, in Ottawa and see, you know, the same kind of thing. Like, and that's kind of what made mm-hmm. it chilling and suspenseful for me. So the mm-hmm. environment succeeded in that way, but I was expecting a little more uh, atmosphere and I guess um, mood created by these uh, environments by some pathetic fallacy, you know, that would connect to the characters that would focus on that. But I didn't yeah. really get that. But even still, I did like what we got. So I'm like a three and a half with environs. Okay, cool. Yeah, I was a three with my environs, and that puts you at a three and a three five. Uh, for the same reasons, really. But I just know because I've seen, and, and maybe this is unfair, but Joyland, for example, was a story where the environs for me, if we were doing it, and my recollection of it, I would be giving near top marks because that's, that's a summer... Um, summer job for these teenagers and it's like a scooby-doo land right like the one where the scooby-doo yeah. goes to the goes to the, the 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 fun park right the fun land or whatever it is <laughs> joyland joyland is a place that is itself a character and is itself a haunting you know and so because they go there to work for those meddling kids <laughs> <laughs> yeah but i mean there, there is that element to joyland and i encourage you to to read it i'm, I'm going to go back and revisit it after having done later because it reminded me that oh yeah he writes really good in this way and i want to go back and and kind of see that one i might even do a short I, I review think I'm go- here i think unlike the silver pigs where i'm not really going to continue on unless as i said you know i probably watch a mm. tv show on it or something <laughs> I, I i'm definitely i'm definitely going to uh I, i'll probably read like the all the stephen king uh hard case crime because you know cool. that's at least i can say you know i've read those series compared you know and there's a lot of books of stephen king that you know that i could read i'll probably enjoy them but you know uh on the tra- with the tra- trajectory that i'm on with later i kind of like this crime horror mixing that he does so uh nice. joyland definitely sounds a- appealing to me so yeah I'll, i like I'll joyland definitely go into that. A bit. and uh, i tell you what if you read joyland i'll reread it and uh, we'll put it behind a paywall we'll do a review behind a paywall or Patreon someday. <laughs> yeah, right. Anyway. People well, pay for this. <laughs> I mean, exactly. no, I mean, if you want to, great. I mean, you know, and we'd love to do it for sure. But, uh, and you know, I, we, I do we can add it I to do. the season. Well, yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> We're not going to charge anybody for this stuff. Um, anyway, <laughs> moving on, moving on away from the environment. Let's talk about the secondary characters. This was my highest mark because what I felt yeah, like I didn't too. get... I didn't get the atmosphere from like the homes or the environments quite the same way that you did. Although I do defer to your, your judgment there about the horror and the daylight thing. King does that really well. I liked, I liked how we were getting these interesting things from like the professor and the conversations with Regis Thomas. Like that's where I got the vibes and the details that kind of were kind of chilling and stuff. And, um, I I did miss though, Josh, I don't know if you felt this way. Maybe this connects more to Jamie's character, but I missed not having... And maybe it's because of the vignettes, you know, the the, 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 the the time jumping. But I miss not having a friend at school or like a, a mm. body or a, a person to bounce things off, you know, like the mention of the girls is so brief in here, like the girl who came up and spoke to him, like that's just to say adolescence is here. But he didn't have a friend or like even a dog that he walked, you know what I mean? All the time. Yeah, like, it's true. It, yeah, there's or, for him to bounce off. He, he just yeah, had Liz and his yeah. mom and Mr. Burkett, really. And, and that was it. And I liked that. I did like Professor Burkett, yeah. and but, I did. I, the, I liked it, but too. all the other, all the other minor characters were like 
negative or sort of evil or twisted, like Donald Marsden and Terrio and Liz and Regis Thomas Even was Regis okay. Regis Thomas in his own way too. Yeah, kind of, yeah. Anyway, I don't off know. about him, like the fact that he wore like this yellow sash from like his spelling bee and he was <laughs> yeah, always like in his yeah. shorts and stuff like that, <laughs> like definitely an eccentric character. And to yeah. be like, I can see him being a bit weird just given this, you know, the subject matter that he wrote about. Yeah, and sure, yeah. I don't know if you agree with me on this, but did you feel the Roanoke saga was kind of like, a, a, was was Sting like kind of, you know, doing like a, a little night, like, like a fun little jab at Diana Gabaldon's Outlander stuff? I, I don't know. Like I just felt mm, I had like maybe. that similar kind of fandom to it. I don't know. Although I'll probably go into, I hope to God my mother and sister never hear me or even my late grandmother, you know, <laughs> don't, don't, yeah. don't hear me yeah. saying this because I don't mean to put Outlander down at all or Jamie or anything like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, but maybe, I think it's more likely he was playing off of Lonesome Dove or something like that. Oh, possibly with the supernatural element because Roanoke, as you know, was like yeah. the second colony in America that was founded and it was never like mm-hmm. it disappeared completely, right? Yeah, totally. Um, I think yeah. maybe closer to something like that. But anyway, the secondary players in this story are, are good. They're serviceable plus. I, I enjoyed them. Yeah. Um, but because of the structure of the story, Tia, Tia was good. She's kind of I, elusive for me. I didn't mm, like Tia as a person, but I believed her as a character. Yeah, I thought I would she was agree. a good mom. She was, mm-hmm. but I liked how I, what I did like though, was that like, she wasn't a perfect mom either. Like she was very oh, flawed. She wasn't, like, yeah. The whole idea of her, like, you know, I understand why she did what she did to get the story from, um, uh, Thomas. To, to, you know, to get, to get the plot notes from Thomas via Jamie so that she could, you know, you know, save her family basically. Like, I understand why she did that and mm-hmm. I don't hate her for that whatsoever. I do like how she gave Liz the front door. Like, I, I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that she kind of like forgets it, but she wants to like Jamie to forget about his situation. I don't know. Like, was that denial or she like, I think that's denial. her. Yeah. I think that's fear yeah. for her. But I, I she, still don't understand yeah. her. Like, did, did she actually like have a continuous relationship with her brother? Like did, so like the fact that she went after to look after her brother and, and while he was in his situation and she didn't just leave him, that to me indicates to me, like that hints to me that towards like, she was okay with what happened between her and her brother, you know, that long weird. ago. Very weird. It was very weird. Because if she was victimized or traumatized by him, I think something like his situation would have... Now, I, and, and mm-hmm. quote me if I'm wrong, because I don't mean to get into the subject of someone who's been in that situation, in the mindset story of someone who's been in that situation, but I didn't quite know whether or not, like, she was okay with what happened with her brother or she wasn't okay with it, you know? Like, mm-hmm. But maybe that could also explain that her fact not being with it, repressing it in the way that she could, explains why she was probably a very temperamental and emotionally zigzaggy kind of per- kind of person throughout, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, an experience like that, I mean, I'm not saying that she wasn't gay, but maybe she went in that direction because, you know, like, well, I slept with my brother, so I think I'm done with men, you know what I mean? Or, or something <laughs> Jesus, like that. Well, like that kind of experience yeah. could be traumatizing for her, you know what I mean? Okay, in that, in that sense, yeah. Okay, perhaps, perhaps. There, there's yeah. a real ambiguity about yes. her feelings towards it all and her means and methods. And I think we're just left to, left to think that she, she is emotionally scarred and yes. didn't want to cast out her brother when maybe she was complicit in it. I mean, both of them had drinks at the funeral. Uh, that That's all we're told, right? Through Jamie's recollection of something he wasn't even there to see. So how do we know? This is how he rationalizes it. And, and it's a really tricky one because we have levels and of rationalization. And she loves her son too. 
yeah, she loves her did. son too. Like, so she doesn't despise him, you know, for being the product of, you know, what he is. She never got an abortion no. or anything like that. Yeah. Like she, you know, she, I mean, obviously to hide her shame too of this, of what happened too, obviously. Right. Mm-hmm. So, but the, the narrator at that point in the story, when the revelation comes about forcing us to reconsider Tia, the narrative at that point of the story becomes very unreliable because we're looking at it yes. through different filters of a character that doesn't understand the time and the place and can't speak for the dead, nor because he didn't ask the dead those yes. details. And he also can't speak because he never shares with his mom what he knows. So he doesn't know the truth, but we, we only have his conjecture to read through. And I think that's yes. really challenging from a literary or a normative point of view in trying to understand what Tia's motivations were. You know, we, we, we really don't know. That's King basically cutting the novel short and leaving it wrapped up in kind of a, a way that he wouldn't if it was a 400-page novel. <laughs> yeah, it's almost like he didn't quite know where to end it in, in that sense, right? Like, he got this journey so far, but now what do I do with it? Like, would it be, would it be interesting if he got to the point where Jamie gets Alzheimer's, but he, but, or it doesn't, it, it, but, it, but the reason, or he doesn't get Alzheimer's, and the reason because he doesn't is because of his connection to the dead light. And for some particular mm. reason, that this keeps, keeps him, his yeah. memories yeah. going. Like, that would be a really interesting sort of um, mm-hmm. way of doing it, but, you know, that wasn't explored. So there you go. Uh, other supporting characters, though, we're talking about Professor Burkett, and I'd like to talk about him a little bit. Sure. Um, I really enjoyed his character. He was He's a great. great kind of yep. mentor character, like an Obi-Wan Kenobi type for him, yep. helping him, you know, work his powers and how to develop it. I loved how he believed him instantly. I mean, there was an emotional connection as to why he did, but I also loved how open-minded, despite being a man of logic, you know, at least he was a liter- he was a BA and not like uh-huh. a, a like a <laughs> like a engineering student yeah, or, no. or an en- engineering yeah. or engineering. Yeah prof because then he probably wouldn't have believed him but the fact that he's more open-minded to those kind of supernatural elements like fairy tales and stuff mm-hmm. he was able to and understand that there is some basis for how those stories occur i think that was able to help him understand jamie and mm-hmm. even though he didn't 100 believe it he there was something going on that he knew that he couldn't quite explain that's right yeah I, I did like how he was his mentor the whole thing about you know the ritual of the chud i think it was mm-hmm. called the ritual of chud yep of chud yeah like how you know, bite your tongue and then that you face down your enemy on some cosmic plane. Like, yeah, I don't know, it reminds me cool. of like X-Men, it reminds me of like X-Men comics of like Professor Xavier versus the Shadow King on the, on the spiritual plane. You know what I yeah, mean? Like, yeah. uh, yeah. having some kind of psychic battle. And so, and also in the mention, he also, I just realized King throws in Westchester County. So there is the comic that's book right. connection again with, with the X-Men, yep. right? So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, so, Berkett, so that's there too. Burkett's really cool. And he, he does serve that sort of mentor role, as you say. King does play with these types of figures in most of his stories. And what's interesting about Burkett here and why I like him is, is that it it's not important to him that he believes it, but he believes that Jamie is experiencing it. And that's where... He, that's where his value, I think, as a teacher and as a mentor comes in. Like, he doesn't judge and say, well, that's not something I believe in, therefore it's not real. He says, I don't know, but I know that you are sincere. And that's enough for you me to talk it. to you about it. Yeah. And I, I like yeah. that. I like that a lot. And I think you're right. If he was an engineering prof or, or a chemistry prof, we wouldn't be having this conversation. <laughs> no, 100 per- Yeah, that, just exactly. Wouldn't. You, you you need the open mindedness of a PhD in literature or something like that yeah, in order yeah. to uh, approach those kind of things, in my opinion. 
Uh, we talked about Regis Thomas. He was interesting and eccentric in his own way. Yep. Marsden was your typical, like, he was he was like a, a criminal. Like, you know, he was what he was. He served the purpose in the story. Yeah. Um, he was more than that, though, Josh. I mean, he was the criminal. He was the drug kingpin and all the rest of it. Ultimately, Liz's boss in the last stages. But he was, yeah. also, he was also a sexual deviant and a pedophile. Yes. And there was all sorts of... That panic room stuff was really quite uncomfortable, deliberately so. But that That was that a pretty stuff, tense sequence, yeah. Yeah, yeah it really was, because... I, I, I don't, I don't think it was a pedophile though. I think he was like a torture porn guy. That's that because okay. he had the pictures of his of his wife, right? So okay. no, I'm still yeah. it's still so still terrible. But I'm yeah. just saying. I'm just going. Okay, from the fair story, enough. Though. Thank you for that correction. That's an important. That is an important correction. It, but yeah. even Liz in her state was shocked by the photographs. I thought that was quite interesting. Which yeah. suggests which suggests that maybe there was still a little bit of her in there. Do you know? Like Absolutely. although she was outraged she, at the lack of drugs, she was still emotionally caught by what she saw in that panic room. It was almost a reminder going like, I work for this man. I, I, I you yeah. know, like what have I been doing my whole life? It was that kind There's of some morality moment, right? left. Yeah. Like maybe in that moment, you know, maybe she wasn't going to kill him after all. Like who knows what would have happened after that. Right. It's hard to say. And what's interesting though, when Jamie runs out, like when she goes after him, she doesn't like shoot him. She no. chases after him. So there's still that ambiguity to me, like whether or not Liz was going to, you know, kill him or not. Mm-hmm, that was still mm-hmm. there. But the fact that the idea of it was there, that kind of shook me. Like in my way, I kind of wanted her to like let him go or something or, or just let go. Yeah. But I knew no. given this was a King story that it probably wouldn't go in that direction. Yeah. That's and I right. knew that somehow they already set up, you know, that he's going to call on Terrio or the Deadlight to save him at some point. Um, yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And then I had in my mind going, okay, this is starting to feel like a bit like this Dr. Sleep now in a moment. Um, are we going to get mm-hmm. that deus ex machina from the demon or something? You know what mm-hmm. I mean? So, mm-hmm. so what did you, what did you give the secondary characters? I gave it a four. That was one okay. of the strongest parts of the book for cool. me. I was really interested in the secondary characters. I, I think Stephen King writes humanity so well. He captures everything. The he really good does. And the bad yeah. So well. And just how people act and talk and have conversations and, and then their mindsets on how they do things. Like they're very believable. Nothing's ham fisted mm-hmm. to me. Mm-hmm. I even like little details like Professor Martin uh, Burkett, like this, you know, this distinguished professor, you know, sitting down with his, giving James coffee and sitting down in his chair and, and yeah. farting yeah. and, and just, and just a description of that and mention <laughs> yeah. it. Like, you know, like if you've ever been with a senior citizen you know even someone you respect or whatever and they sit down you know and they and they have a fart you know like (laughs) it's just one of those situations where like uh, we're all human you know and and the king is king really brings the more the mortality i think to his writing and makes you feel like you're living in that world with him and 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 you get sort of a tactile feel from his writing through his characters totally yeah no i agree man i couldn't have said it better and that that's and, and for characters that are only in the story for a little bit, we get to know them as human beings, right? Yeah, yeah. I will say as a another note here, kind of it's not really what we're talking about, but um, I love that Stephen King called out like one of my favorite TV series of like the two thousand of the of of the of the, uh, of the I guess the two thousand tens or the aughts, I guess you could say. Is that what they were? Or? Mm-hmm. Yeah, or or the teens, I guess you could say, is. Uh, fringe like that's to yeah. me like one of the best uh sci-fi series uh and i can see totally why stephen king would mention it he's probably a fan yeah, and that probably. was such a great show mm-hmm. it involves father figures children with powers freaks of nature um <laughs> and it deals with the metaphysical and and also the scientific at the same time but creating the scientific as almost supernatural which is mm-hmm. a really cool blend and i can see why stephen king uh uh called it out and and free yeah I, I love the fact that Stephen King gave props to Fringe. I love that so much. Well, he also gives props to himself, as I outlined a little earlier. Um, there's <laughs> he a bit here towards the end where he says, um, 
This is Jamie talking, and it was true that I had only vague memories of a smart guy who would have, who should have stayed a smart a lot longer, but it wasn't him I'd be hoping for. This is after, this is when Harry's died. I'll take the bus, which I could do with ease, because this bus was how we'd always gone to New Jersey in the days when Ubers and Lyfts were beyond our budget. Your tests, you have to study for your finals. Books are a uniquely portable magic. I read that somewhere. I'll bring them. See you there. That's what he says to his mom. Well, that quote, books are a uniquely portable magic, that's a Stephen King quote. <laughs> I've got that uh, I've got that quotation and the, and the larger part of the quotation uh, in my classroom on a poster. That's funny. Yeah. I, I read that somewhere. <laughs> I guess you, you know did. What? If yeah. you enjoy writing like he does, like he writes a lot of books, like he must he actually sure does, not yeah. do, do it for a career, but he also loves it. He loves telling stories and yeah, creating stories it, and yeah. characters. So you can tell he loves it. And you know what? If he wants to reference himself in his books, you know, like I think he's earned the right to do that. You know, like yeah, I disagree. He I heard that like he actually appears as himself in the Dark Tower. Although the Dark mm-hmm. Tower I heard does deal with parallel universes and different worlds and stuff like that. So, and apparently it connects to other stories. Like I know, like uh, we talked about the Roland Flag stuff, how he's in different yes. Stephen King stories yeah. in his own way. Uh, so I understand, you know, why Stephen King would write himself in there. It does seem a little bit uh, egocentric, but at the same time. I, I understand why. And I, you know, and given his career, I think, why not? <laughs> yeah, why not? Well, look, pal, uh, that was a good discussion. And if I can total yeah. up our scores now, you went 18 out of 25, which is Ooh. a 72%. So you are in the, yeah. the B territory, firmly the B territory. I agree fully based on our, our, based on our rating system and compared to my own feelings of the novel. Yeah. I think this is definitely a, a B to B plus book. So Nice. And I enjoyed it as well. I went for a 16 overall, but I think I liked it a bit more. I think, Josh, I was a little bit tougher on it in my scoring because I had read other Kings, uh, quite a few Mm. other Kings, and I had read Joyland, which I did enjoy, even though I don't remember it very well. I know I enjoyed it a little bit more than this one, but I think this book, uh, I'm I'm proud that we've, I'm glad that we've got a a real modern contemporary book here. This is just published a couple of months ago. So in, in our survey of literature this year, or this series, I think this one will be good because it's a, it's a recent text and people can go out and get it quite easily just now. Uh, so yeah, yeah uh, you, you can go story. on Amazon or, or, or whatever online access you have for the you know, library. For, uh, the go library. Libraries. People still use those. Can you go to the library right now though, with the pandemic mm. and all that? In some places, surely libraries yeah. must be open in some places. Some places maybe, <laughs> some places. But yeah, no. later by Stephen King, uh, part of the uh, hard case crime genre, uh, sorry, crime, uh, uh, publisher mm-hmm. and uh, it's his third book in the series uh, Scott also recommended Joyland by him which I think I'm definitely going to check out uh, for sure uh, what do we got next on the list well uh, next on the list my friend we can um, we, we can have a look at Ellis Peters um, Morbid Taste for Bones which is one oh yes the yeah. cat fail. or we can look at Knots and Crosses by Ian Rankin the first Rebus novel I, I, I like. I think I like to jump back into the historical, uh, some, and then maybe go, and then kind of like ping pong over to the urban crime stuff uh, after okay. that. Right. Okay. So yeah, you're still I, feeling like we need a little bit more of a break from Marlowe before we go back into that world, hey? Exactly. Even exactly. if we are in Scotland. Even if we are in Scotland. All right. Well, there or we go. You're in We're, Scotland, anyways. Well, yeah, but so is Ian Rankin, and so is uh, Rebus, right? Well, what's in Canada, murder mystery, murder mystery wise? I Murdoch. Guess, like. <laughs> Murdoch mysteries. Oh boy, uh, <laughs> that's all I can think of. No, I'm sure there's a great, uh, great Canadian. Oh, of course there know. is. Yeah, who's the guy? Alias uh, Grace. 
by Margaret Atwood. Yeah, it's a great one, but that's not on our reading list for this season, unfortunately. Great story, though. Mm -hmm. Something we could definitely check out for sure. Yeah. Right. Well, thank you very much, everybody, for joining us. We hope you've enjoyed our uh, our quick route through uh, through Later by Stephen King. It it is a book we both recommend. Very fun to read. Great characters. Interesting. Uh, the ending a little bit pat. Uh, I know we spoiled mm -hmm. it for you now, but uh, yeah. Well, why listen to this podcast if you haven't read the book yet? You know. <laughs> Uh, and if hey, look if uh, if you're into, I mean, hey, uh, if you if you want to be spoiled, fine. Listen to our podcast by all means. <laughs> but I'm just saying, <laughs> yeah, I know. Ooh, nice backpedal there. Nice backpedal. Uh, let us know what you think of the show or uh, later or anything at all. Uh, comment on our Instagram posts. Find us there, lighting later. the pipes, or send us an email at lightingpipes at gmail .com. And if you're interested in the world of James Bond and spy fiction and espionage, well, we're also in our third series of Bond by Numbers. And uh, you get yourself over there and uh, participate with us. And, you know, you can check out our work over there. we got lots of great stuff going on this season. And with those Absolutely. And with those shameless plugs out the way, let's, uh, let's say goodbye and wish everybody the best. And we'll see you back here soon for Brother Cadfell and the first installment of Ellis Peters' Monastic and Medieval Mysteries. See you later. <laughs> later, buddy. Take care. Bye.